Aha, here we go. Well, my name's Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. It's my privilege to chat to you this morning, but not to feedback, so I'm sorry about that. Thanks, Ezra. Sound is really tricky. If you've never done sound, you have no idea how tricky sound is, so we're really thankful to all the people who work on this week after week. It's a real challenge. If I had a crystal ball, and if I could see the future, and if I could tell you anything at all from the future, anything at all, what would you like to know? What I'd like you to do is pop your phones out right now and tell me, okay? I know, a church where you're meant to look at your phones during the talk. How good is that? But pop your phones out right now and tell me, if, uh, what would you like to know from the future? If I had a crystal ball, if I could tell you anything at all, what would you actually like to know? Who's going to win the Tory leadership contest? Who's... A lot of excitement. Who's going to win the tennis or the golf or the cricket or the other sport of your choosing? Um, will the stock market go up or down? That would be handy to know, wouldn't it? It'd be really handy to know that. Or how about something really important? Who is going to win Eurovision next year? Really important stuff. Are you going to get the grade? Are you going to get the job? Are you going to get the house? Are you going to get that date? What would you like to know? What have we got here? <laughs> when will Jesus come back? Will we always live in Edinburgh? That's an interesting question. How long will I live? Will I be a billionaire? I can answer that one for you. No, no, you won't. <laughs> will Trump come back? <laughs> will, I, will I be in heaven together with Jesus? By faith and repentance, yes. Lottery numbers, don't have it. Sorry, can't help you out with that one. Who will win the Super Bowl next year? Somebody's just looking for money here. You're not really interested in who's going to win. You want the money, don't you? But uh, who here wouldn't want to know the future? Or at least least something from the future, right? Just got to get my apps in a row. My apps are in a row. As Christians, we believe in a God who knows the future. Uh, A God who sometimes shares some of that knowledge about the future with us through what we call prophecy. And today, as we continue to follow the story of the very first churches, prophecy comes right into the foreground. And one of the things I love about our practice of walking through the Bible bit by bit is rather than me or whoever's standing here at the front setting the agenda and choosing the topics and picking what it is we're going to talk about, rather than that, in fact, it is God who is choosing the topic and setting the agenda. Now, I, I, I say I like that. And what I mean there is I like the idea of that. Ezra, do you want me just to switch? Shall I switch to the handheld? Would that be better? Yeah, I'll just switch to the handheld. Sorry about that. But I think that'll serve us better. I like the idea of that, but sometimes it makes us talk about things that are difficult or things that are complicated, things we otherwise wouldn't choose. Now, prophecy is definitely in that bracket for me. I know it's not for everyone, but it is for me. And I want you to know up front that we're going to take about five more minutes today. I didn't tell the kids program, so pray for them. But we're going to take about five more minutes than usual this morning because there is a lot to be covered. And let's be frank, this is a very controversial topic. Uh, It's one where you'll have a range of views here as a church, and uh, even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's a range of views around people who wouldn't believe as well. Some folk think it's ridiculous, the idea of knowing about the future. Other people study their horoscopes faithfully week after week, right? And some people have their fortunes read. We met some people just the other day who were telling us about the experience they had having who they called the spooky lady come and tell them what was going to happen. 
So it's definitely something that's out there in the world too. We're, we're going to look together at what the Bible wants to teach us uh, about prophecy. And where we're up to is Paul, uh, a key leader in the early church, is on his way back to Jerusalem. He's at the end of this epic voyage of telling people about Jesus, starting new churches, journeying around. And we're in the book of Acts. We're at chapter 21, at the start of chapter 21, and that's page 1118 in the Blue Bibles. And it'd be great to have you turn there because we're going to be poking around and jumping back and forwards and looking at some of the details there this morning. So page 1118, Acts chapter 1, and Alex is going to come and read for us this morning. Thanks, Alex. Page 1118. Thanks, Matt. Good morning. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day, we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board, and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre, and landed at Ptolemais, where we were greeted, the brothers and sisters, and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, We gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Thanks very much. Okay, so there's prophecy in the foreground, just like we promised. Um, Two weeks back, Ian was teaching us, and uh, we saw Paul, the guy at the center of the story here, say he was compelled by the Spirit to go up to Jerusalem, Acts 20, um, verses 22 and 23. And yet, in every spirit, uh, in every city, the Spirit warns him that trouble awaits him there. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going up to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, only knowing that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. What we get to see here in today's passage is one of those warnings kind of up close 
and taken apart and on display for us, where we just had kind of these summary statements so far about what's happened. But before I get into that, we need to take a step back and talk about something that's very precious to us at church. And that is this idea of keeping secondary issues secondary. See, there are lots of things that Christians who accept the Bible as their authority, who, who want to know what it has to teach them, come to different views on them. And, and prophecy is one of those things that people come to different views on. Now, at Hope City, we call those things secondary issues. Lots of other people do as well. It's not our special term, but we call them secondary issues. And um, when people who really want to understand what the Bible teaches have actually reached different conclusions on what exactly it is that the Bible teaches. We want to be a church where people with different views on these secondary matters can choose to practice generosity, can come together around the things we agree are primary. So come together around Jesus, around the gospel, around God's mission. Now, the reason we want this is not just because we're gluttons for punishment and we like to choose difficult routes. We want this because we think the Bible teaches us to behave this way. And if you wanted to see that, the place I would point people is Romans chapter 14. And uh, what it tells us there is it tells us how to work together around what it calls disputable matters or secondary issues. It tells us we're not to quarrel about these things. We're not to treat others with contempt when they've got different views from us. We're not to judge But what we are to be is fully convinced in our own hearts of what we're doing, fully convinced in our own minds of our views, and yet we have to act in love to others with different views. So that's what we want to do as a church. That's who we want to be. And importantly, Romans 14, when you read it, calls both sides to make room for the other. It's written about a particular dispute, but it's a pattern for wider disputable matters. And it's a call to both sides to serve the other, to make space for them and their views, uh, to ensure we're not trampling on them. That means if you're here this morning and you're thinking, prophecy, bring it on. You need to make room for the people who are like, prophecy, no. And if you're at the other end of the spectrum, you too have to make room for the people on the other side. You've got to act out love. And if that sounds easy in practice, it's tricky. And uh, it's one of the things I think we're still working out as a church, how this really looks. We have these aspirations, but we're putting them into practice and discovering what it really means. But that's where we want to be. That's where we want to go. So if you're a follower of Jesus here today, whatever you think about prophecy, I want you to know that you are welcome. I'm going to be sharing some of my own views along the way. I'm going to be pointing us at lots of parts of the Bible for us to consider what the Bible has to say, but you're welcome, and uh, you don't have to agree with me to find yourself in the heart of Hope City. I hope all of us can listen together to what the Bible has to say and see what we can learn. And you're going to need your thinking hats on today because this is not easy or straightforward. So here's where we were, compelled by the Spirit. The Spirit's been warning Paul in every city that troubles ahead. Uh, We're not told how that works. We don't get kind of any geometry or description of what's inside. Um, It's like some of the other supernatural stuff we've met in Acts a few chapters back. It just kind of happens, and we're not really told what the detail is. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know. It's one of the disappointing things, but it does tell us everything we need to know. And the truth is, the Bible doesn't tell us that much about prophecy. So when we come to wrestle with it, we're working from a relatively small set of information, particularly when it comes to how that works in the church. That's part of why Christians come to different conclusions, I think. 
Now, it doesn't seem like Paul goes looking for this guidance in each city. It reads like he can't avoid it. It reads like it naturally comes up as just part of his time with the believers in each place. And perhaps that's through prophecy. Perhaps that's what's happened all the way through this journey where the Spirit warns him in city after city. We don't know for sure, but when he writes to one of those churches in a letter, it sounds like prophecy is a normal part of the church gathering there. This is to the church in Corinth, one of the places he's visited relatively recently. And he says... When you all come together, so he's talking to them about when they come together as a church and about what should happen there. And uh, the section goes on to say, when you all come together, two or three prophets should speak and others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to somebody who's sitting down, the first should stop. You can all prophesy in turn so that everyone can be instructed and encouraged. Now, in that church, it sounds like there are prophets everywhere, every second chair. There's prophecies flying about every week uh, in a communal time together. Prophecy sometimes comes to somebody who's sitting and they need to kind of join in and get it out and interrupt. And it tells us that the purpose there is instruction and encouragement. Now, whenever you read something about a particular church, you have to be careful about how much you generalize that. This was written to a particular church. It doesn't say this should happen in every church or this does happen in every church back then. And it doesn't say that today. But some people understand it that way. That's kind of how we get to some of the different views. But perhaps that's how Paul's been repeatedly warned by the Spirit on his journey towards Jerusalem. In today's section... As Paul and his group travel, they stop with another church. And in verse 4, it looks like the same thing happens again, only this time it's a little bit different. So verse 4 from what we read today, we sought out the disciples there. We stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Like up until now, he's been warned about what's ahead. This looks like a direction, don't go. We've got to stop and think about that for a moment because can the Spirit really be compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem and telling him don't go to Jerusalem? How does that work? Maybe we only get a compressed summary here. Maybe the full story is there's this divine warning like there's been in all these other cities and then a human response to that divine warning that is don't go. Certainly that is exactly the pattern we saw a bit later in this same passage and that's the explanation some commentators run with and that's the one I think I would lean towards. But there's another option I want you to consider. I know this is a bit long-winded but we're just going to dig around here and make sure we've thought about what's going on. There's another option um, to consider. In the teaching we looked at about prophecy, we read that letter to the Corinthians a little bit from that. Notice with me in that letter, uh, it said two or three should speak and then the others should weigh should weigh what has been said. Now, we don't get any detail at all on what that means or how to do it, which is not not very handy if you're trying to do it. You're like, fine, yes, but how? That's always my question. But nonetheless, it does seem like in the New Testament, when there's prophecy, there is some need to evaluate it. There's some need to weigh it or to test it or to check it. You read the same sort of direction in another letter to another one of these early churches in Thessalonica, another place that Paul's been through recently. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what's good. Now, why would you need to weigh or test prophecy? Perhaps because it's easy to get it wrong. Perhaps it's easy to only get part of the message or to only get a hazy sense rather than seeing clearly. And if you read around these sections about prophecy, here's a bit of a longer chunk from that same letter to the Corinthians. The suggestion you get is that we're seeing in part 
um, that were prophesying in part. And it talks about in this section, we see like a reflection in a mirror. Now, today's mirrors are lovely and you can see all of your imperfections and the facial hair that you should have removed earlier. But mirrors back then were not nearly as good. They generally tended to be polished objects that gave you a somewhat warped, somewhat murky um, reflection of things. So that, that reflection in a mirror kind of implies that you're not seeing clearly. It's compared with face-to-face, where you are seeing clearly and everything's precise. That distinction that we, we know in part, we prophesy in part, suggests that there's a partiality to it rather than a fullness. So that's the other explanation people put forward for this uh, verse. Through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, but don't go would be an example in that case of the sort of prophecy that should be weighed or tested and then rejected. That's the wrong answer. That's not what we should do. Two different understandings of that one, but wait, there's more. Everyone's so excited this morning about this. I'm quite excited about this. It's interesting. So learn with me. <clears throat> there's, there's more. Okay. This guy, Agabus, shows up. He's got a theatrical belt prophecy for Paul. There are precedents for this sort of prophecy in the Old Testament. So you see people acting things out. And one example, the guy has to go around naked for three years. That's fairly extreme. Doesn't happen a lot. But this acting out of messages from God definitely happens a little bit. But this is the only time we get anything like this in the New Testament. It doesn't seem like it's part of a regular church gathering because notice Agabus has come down from Jerusalem. He's obviously got some message that he's meant to deliver. And we've seen this guy Agabus before, but you'd be forgiven for not remembering. He showed up in Acts eleven twenty-eight, And back then he said, there's going to be a famine over here. And then the text says, and by the way, there was. That was the famine that happened here and then. So, so this guy Agabus has got game. He's got track record. He's like, he, he says things and then they happen. So when he says this tying up in belts thing, you can imagine people are thinking, hmm, this is going to happen. And if you're into prophecy, one of the fascinating things we get here is we get to see the actual words of a prophecy, which is very, very unusual in the New Testament. We get to see the kind of content in detail. So let's look at the detail of what we've got there. It's future telling. Almost all the prophecy that we get to know about the content of in the New Testament is future telling. It tells us things that are going to happen next. Uh, it's concrete and specific. It's not mysterious and vague. Right? This is not difficult to get your head around what Agabus thinks is going to happen next, is it? There's no, I feel like maybe God is saying that something to do with apples is going to happen at some point in your future. It's not, it's not vague like that. It is concrete, specific, measurable, evaluatable. But, but on first inspection, it doesn't seem to match quite what happens. So he says, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are going to bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Romans. As we'll see next week, it looks like it's the Romans who do the binding at the bidding of their commander, right? This Roman commander, there's trouble at the mill, as if you're a Monty Python fan. Um, the Romans rush in to sort things out, and the Roman commander orders Paul to be bound. So it's the Romans doing the binding, it looks like there. And then it doesn't read as if the Jews handed him over to the Romans. They, they did not want to hand him over to the Romans. They wanted to kill him. And it was annoying to them that the Romans took him off. Like... The, 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 the Romans have to grab him. They have to carry him. And then the, the, the crowd following is like, get rid of this man. Kill him. He must die. So maybe there's another example here of that need to weigh or to test things, right? Maybe Agabus is like, you're going to get bound by the Jews and handed over to the Romans. And the answer is not quite. 
close but no banana, mate. <clears throat> That's certainly what some commentators and theologians think. But I want to give you another side to that one too. I want to confuse you this morning. Everyone keeping up? Good. Okay, <clears throat> here's the other side to that one. If this prophecy should have been weighed and it should have been rejected, or at least it should have been taken very, very tentatively as only seeing in part, there is no suggestion at all that that's what happened here. See the, the crowd around Paul respond by pleading with him not to go. They uh, seem to take it as accurate or at least accurate enough to say, A change of direction is required. They certainly don't reject it or shut it down as an error. Their response would make no sense if they thought this was an error. And then, not just that, maybe they just messed up or forgot to test it, but Paul himself, Paul himself tells them he is ready to be bound. And that suggests that he too sees that prophecy as accurate. He's like, tell me I'm going to be bound? I'm okay with being bound. Not failing the test, but foretelling the future. It's a future with trouble, but a future he's ready to face. So maybe this isn't an example of that prophecies that should have been tested and then rejected. And those tensions between the details that we're talking about there. Well, the first people to seize Paul in the narrative are the Jews. We're not told they bound him here, but it is actually possible they did. And later on, Paul retells this story himself in his own words. And this is how he tells it. He says, I was arrested in Jerusalem and then handed over to the Romans. And hard to imagine being arrested without being bound, isn't it? Or calling yourself arrested. So then it looks like it matches. So maybe when we read the next section about what happens, when we look at that next week, maybe we're just getting a summary rather than precise detail. Now, prophecy is not simple stuff, right? What have I given you here? A lot of options and confusion. I'm here to help. What do we want to do with this as a church? What what should you do with this as an individual? Now, there are probably some here who would understand the Bible teaching that prophecy has come to an end because there are reasons you can come to that conclusion from the Bible itself. So for you, perhaps this is mostly academic interest. It's like, here's something that used to happen, but it's good to understand and explore what others believe and help them be true to their beliefs. So even if you don't hold with this, you can challenge other people to read what scripture says, and help them think about it. But I want to assure you that you are really welcome here if that's your position. Now, there, there are others here who would say, well, I have received prophecy. Maybe even they've delivered prophecy. Now, for you, I guess I really want to encourage you to think about this testing or weighing is and how we engage with that, right? It's definitely part of the teaching around prophecy that seems to be important. It's repeated in multiple contexts. I want you to consider the communal nature, the communal context that prophecy seems to have. Most of the time in the New Testament is something heard by others, weighed with others, rather than something that happens in private and you've just got to deal with yourself as an individual. It seems to have a communal context. See the consistency of how God is speaking here. How's that as an encouragement? You know, in each of these towns, the spirit warns not to go on. Now, imagine if you're the prophet in town four and you're like, don't go on. And Paul's like, every city, every city, God says that to me. You're like, I'm encouraged because I'm hearing correctly. I'm knowing what to say. So expect that sort of consistency from God and his direction. And then we've got to recognize it's tricky to respond to. Even if this prophecy stuff happens, even if you get like an uber clear prophecy like this Agabus one, what next? What are you meant to do with it? Here, this group of pretty elite believers who've been you know, at the front, the cutting edge of the mission field, traveling all over the world, come to radically different conclusions 
about what they should do as a result of the prophecy. So it's tricky. If you feel like God has given you a prophecy, I would encourage you to share it. I think the Bible does teach us to do that, to share it in the company of a few others, if it's for an individual, to share it with the elders, that's the leaders of the church, if you feel like it's for the church. And I want to assure you, if that's where you are, you are welcome here too. But there is a third group here, and I suspect rather more of us live in this third group, open to the idea of prophecy in principle, perhaps even found it quite appealing and exciting, but pretty confident in practice, ain't never going to happen to me. Now, if that's you, I want to know you're still welcome here as well. You're welcome too. I want to encourage you, though, to try and keep the door open rather than let it slip shut. Because the Bible tells us we are meant to eagerly desire this. Yeah, it really does. Follow the way of love. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, if you don't hold the view that we're done with this stuff and it's finished, then you do get this command to eagerly desire it. How could you eagerly desire this? I've been thinking about this. A couple ideas for you. Find somebody who is a practitioner, who has direct experience, and ask them about it. That would be kind of like desiring it. Tell me about your experience. How did that happen? How did it come to pass? See if you can come alongside them when something like that's happening. Or talk with one another about what it could look like if this were to happen. What would it be like? What holds us back and makes us worried about it? What are the risks that we really should be guarding against in here? Or perhaps you could eagerly desire it simply by believing God might have something to say to the people around you through you and daring to try it out. But with this kind of cover of testing and of weighing. Now, the difficult thing here is challenging all of us to make room for one another's views so that we can be one church together with different views on these secondary issues. I want to challenge you not to be offended when somebody holds and practices a position different from you. But I want you to practice being gentle as well with those who hold a different position. You don't have to poke people's nose in it or rub it in their eyes just to see if they can see it. So I think we need to practice being gentle with them. It's tricky, but we can do it. You might be thinking, phew, we're done, but we're not. Um, Because, really, I want to come back to the passage again because I, I don't think the main point of this passage is to teach us about or help us think about prophecy. I did want to cover it because it's one of those topics we don't do often and it's at the front of the text. But I I think the main point here is bigger. It's not easy to know what to do with prophecy in general. It's not easy to know in particular to do with this prophecy. Even if there's imprecision in these examples, even if they need to be weighed, they're still giving the general sense. <clears throat> Sorry, the general sense, the patterns established. There is trouble ahead. The Spirit warns Paul. And the question I want to ask you is why? Why does the Spirit warn? Why, why do we warn someone? Why do you warn people about anything? I think most of the time we warn people about things for their safety, to stop them doing things that they shouldn't be doing. <clears throat> we, uh, we want, it's going to end badly, right? Like Peter's tumble dryer book, if you are here last year, it starts with 100 warnings, one of which presumably is, do not take up residence inside the tumble dryer, because that would be bad. Or I found this one, this is a great big scary laser, do not look into the beam with remaining eye. This is the, <clears throat> the general sense of warnings. <clears throat> 
But that is not God's purpose in the warning here. The Spirit's not trying to turn Paul away from Jerusalem to stop him going, even though that's the way his companions understand the warning. The Spirit's compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem, not turning him away. So why does he warn him about what waits for him there? I think the answer is so he can prepare, so that when it comes, when it happens, they know it's the Lord's will, even though it's trouble, even though it's danger, even though it's suffering. Paul's successful, multi-year, epic missionary career is going to look like a car crash. That's what we're going to see next week. It's going to get a complete mess when we turn the page. But God knows what's next. This is his plan. It's so easy to misread life being difficult as life gone wrong, taken the wrong path, taken the wrong turn, gone the wrong way. Now, maybe you don't have Paul's prophetic warnings, but we've got plenty of warnings from Jesus and the Bible. Two weeks ago, Ian was teaching us about that. We have to recognize the route, he told us. We have to recognize following Jesus is going to be difficult. And when it's difficult, it's not that something has gone wrong. Jesus did not promise your best life now, buddy. God's path is hard. People will reject us, maybe even hate us. In some places, even kill us. We'll be called to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And I don't fancy that. And I bet neither do you. I would like an easy life, thanks very much. But I think that is why God is warning Paul here, so that he knows he's still on God's path, following Jesus, living in God's will, part of his plan, even, even when it looks for all the world like everything's gone wrong. Paul had big plans for this trip to Jerusalem. He's been working towards it for a long time. In other letters that he's written, you'll see that he's been gathering up a collection from the Gentile churches, from the non-Jewish churches, to bring as a gift to the Jewish church in Jerusalem to try and make peace and encourage them. You don't get anything like that. But the phrase Paul's companions close with here is important. The Lord's will be done. Now that's, uh, that's a phrase, if that feels familiar, it's an echo Uh, And a pointer to what I think can help you and me when we find life difficult, when we find God's path for us a difficult path. Oh, thanks. I left my water behind. Awesome. Jesus has walked this path before us, right? Did he have warnings of what's ahead? Absolutely. Foretold through the prophets, he knew it himself what awaits him in Jerusalem and told his disciples. And nevertheless, in Gethsemane, through the tears, Jesus was able to pray, your will be done. Jesus chose to come and meet us in our suffering. He chose the the path of obedience that led him to the cross. He chose to walk that path all the way down into death. There's no harder path than that. And yet, that was God's plan. That was God's path. It wasn't an accident or a mistake. Because the path that led through the garden and the cross to the grave also led to the stone rolled away. To an empty tomb. To our resurrected Lord seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. To an explosion of salvation and grace expanding from the epicenter of Pentecost, reaching now to the furthest corners of the world. God's path is hard, but it is ultimately wonderful. But Jesus knows 
what it is to be called by God to walk a hard path. More than that, Jesus walks God's path for us and beside us. Even when it's hard. One of his parting comments to his disciples is, I will never leave you, never forsake you. And he meant it. Paul in his journey here, in just a few days, he's going to be imprisoned. He's going to be threatened. He's going to be accused. And then you know what? The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. Jesus walks God's path for us. And it's a hard but a beautiful path. And then as we have to walk God's paths that are often hard and that will come with difficult things, the encouragement is that he walks beside us. Ellen's going to sing for us a newer song called uh, Abide With Me. And it's kind of a heart cry to know that this is true. And I think we're going to stay seated. Um, You can join in quietly or just in your heart. But just wherever you are in your journey right now, Why not call out to God, abide with me.